Welcome to Reigns and Edge, a libertarian-leaning progressive, a conservative-leaning libertarian. Will they agree on anything? I don't know, but I'm Henry Reigns. And I'm Mark Edge. And we are who we are. <laughs> That's right. I guess I'm, you, the cons- I'm the conservative-leaning libertarian, I guess. Oh, I'm the libertarian-leaning progressive? I, I think that that's a fair assessment of or, you, or yes. I think the conspiracy is you're trying to progressively turn me into a libertarian. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I'm then, not the, then the whole premise you, of the show doesn't work. I'm not, not trying to turn you more conservative or more libertarian. Well, what's going on this week? But, Henry, you and I have known each other for, I mean, many, many decades. Um, I worked for you when 30s, I was... 30s, I think. Oh, I was just saying that we were, uh, we've, we've known each other for many, many years. I started working for you at your comic book store in the mid-80s, uh, maybe even early 80s. I, I'd have to do the math. 1983 would be my guess. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know. I... <laughs> That's when the Braden store opened, so you probably stumbled upon it in 1983, I would think. Back then, when you could buy comic books for under a dollar. Yeah, it was, I think... 60 cents for a comic at that time. Everybody seems to remember how much the, the first comic they bought was. You know, hello to you out there, 12 cents. Um, I remember that the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, and Spider-Man and all those. But the first one I bought was a 25-cent double-sized Yogi Bear. Not the Yogi Bear of the baseball player, but no. yeah, Yellowstone. Yeah, just the cartoon ones. And, and that, like, when people think of comics, because Marvel's been so successful with its movies and that sort of thing, in many cases, they just think of, you know, Captain America, Iron Man, maybe Superman, Batman, these kind of things. But comics have been so much more. They were just like Yogi Bear, like a comic strip or a comic book. They were romance, horror, westerns, you know, so many things were sold uh, throughout the years. But... In the last several decades, it's been you know, dominated by superheroes. That's right. Well, I tended to go a little bit more realistic after Yogi Bear, moving on to Dennis the Menace. Dennis the Menace was very educational back then. Remember, this is like the mid-60s, and Dennis would, would go places like Pearl Harbor with his dad and uh, other places around the country, especially in the summer vacation series stuff that would come out. Mark, we're getting sidetracked here. But we were talking about the inflation of comic book prices. Latest inflation numbers were out this week, and inflation is moderating. But it's actually deflating in China. They also reported a double-digit plunge in July exports and imports. We're going to make all that make sense to you in, in the next segment. And the White House... Restricted U.S. investment in Chinese CERN. It's like a national emergency. You probably weren't even aware of the national emergency, Mark, but Joe Biden was, and he just this week announced an executive order that basically is going to keep an eye on all those capitalists in America that want to do business with China. Thinking back with Lenin back in the Russian Revolution saying that capitalists would sell the rope to hang them with. And that may be <laughs> true. Uh, it may even be an accurate quote. And that leads to the question, are Bidenomics gaining traction? But we're going to put all that aside. We're going to put that aside because 
first we have to deal with important things like comic books and professional wrestling. Not sports entertainment on my side of the microphone. Professional wrestling. and But if we were talking sports entertainment, we'd be talking about Vince McMahon. And I think you brought this to my attention. Yeah, Vince McMahon's a big deal. Uh, and well, you add, just ask him, he'll tell you he's a big deal. <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing is, is if you make a big deal, enough of a big deal about yourself, you're a big deal. Right. Well, and we don't even have this up as uh, the, the lead of the story. But just to give a quick summary here, um, in the first paragraph, what I'm actually going to say was a really big deal was the really big deal that happened just about a month ago. But former World Wrestling Entertainment CEO and majority shareholder Vince McMahon was recently served with a search warrant and subpoena issued by a federal grand jury. The news was released by WWE as part of a quarterly report to the Security and Exchange Commission. And, you know, I have to interject here, whoever I am, I'm pulling this off of uh, Jacksonville television station's news copy. The quarterly report was their quarterly earnings report, which every publicly traded company does in the United States of America. Anyway, the quarterly report to the Securities and Exchange Commission, they, they're doing well, by the way. Thank you. They, they, they are making money. and uh, I don't know that they ever weren't. No, I mean, oh, yeah. Back in the 90s, they had some, some time. I, I've heard stories about when Vince had the water coolers uh, removed from Titan Towers. Because you had to cut back, and rather than cut back on some things, he was taking the water coolers away, and you could just bring your own water. On sharp skin suits, he would uh, cut down on the water coolers. Okay. The the warrant was apparently served on July 17th. Uh, It appears at this point the subpoena is related to a past investigation to whether he paid hush money to employees following allegations of sexual misconduct. I should have edited this for this new service. It appears at this point. They've already admitted that he did pay this months ago when he stepped away from the company about a year ago that yeah. he he had paid uh, hush money or maybe the polite word would be a settlement money. Uh, can't be hush. Actually, in a way, it was hush money because they had non-disclosure agreements about it. Right. That's so, hush money. Yep. Shh. Hush money, non-disclosure. Anyway, what is, uh, I mean, is he married? That's the first question that comes to mind. Well, you know, Mark, marriage is a funny thing. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. We'll talk about that in a a (laughs) second here. McMahon retired from the company following that scandal. Now, that would I say it appeared, I would have put in that sentence, it appeared that he had retired from the company but in recent months, he returned to the WWE to help facilitate a merger with UFC parent company Endeavor to form the new company that is going to have the UFC, all the uh, events and pay-per-views that that generates, and the WWE with all the television revenue and all the uh, Peacock revenues and royalties and all the other money that streams they have coming around from around the world, including their big budget shows in Saudi Arabia now that uh, Saudi Arabia just cuts the big check and the WWE doesn't even have to worry about the place being filled up. They just fly their people in 
And most of the time they can just fly their people out. Although there's been a situation or two where Saudi Arabia went, no, not, not so fast. Um, <laughs> And the other important thing that was left out of this is when he came back, he would he had totally changed his look, shoe polish blacked his his hair from gray, got a pencil thin mustache, and was mistaken for Snidely Whiplash, which we've discussed. <laughs> you know, I saw pictures of him uh, with his new look, and nobody have I ever thought in my life had more of a new look than Vince McMahon has now. I mean, Vince McMahon, in my mind, looks like a thing. And this new guy, it looks like an entirely different person. Vince McMahon looks like a thing or the thing? Um, well, I mean, Vince, Vince McMahon looks like Vince McMahon, right? Like, oh, okay. I, I think that so many people nice have this look. Yeah, he, he just, you know, I, I mean, I drop a picture of him, and the person he looks like now simply doesn't look the same. Now, I've seen some pictures of the evolution of Vince McMahon, and I believe the new pictures, but the new pictures, when, uh, you know, just viewed in my mind's eye against the old picture, uh, is just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. He doesn't look like him. Vince McMahon, in the past, I mean, he's in his mid-70s now. Right. He wrestled two WrestleManias ago against Steve Austin, and it was a little bit embarrassing, but it was embarrassing for Vince McMahon because if people can remember some of the performances he put on in the ring, which were always surprising because he really wasn't a professional wrestler, but he overperformed expectations in those matches on the pay-per-views. And uh, But I would say for a 73-, 4-year-old, um, he exceeded – um, uh, probably every other 73 or 74 year old that we could pull off the street and throw them in a wrestling right. ring with Steve Austin. But yeah, he's, he's in good shape. Uh, and I, you know, it's easy to sit here at 52 and be dashingly good looking and be against uh, plastic surgery. But, uh, you know, I mean, all, all surgeries have risk, I guess is what all I would say to it. I, I'm just surprised by how much the transformation, how much of a transformation there is. And he seems such a like a humble man. <laughs> no, no vanity whatsoever. No, he's vain. There's no doubt. Uh, let's. But that's part of the that's part of the uh, the whole thing. I mean, he's he's willing to bill himself as a heel or a bad guy. So I think that that in, in and of itself just shows that you don't take yourself too seriously. What truly vain individual would be willing to be a bad guy? And I don't know. Well, a truly vain person might get in trouble with the SEC for having alleged sexual harassment of employees, uh, alleged using a publicly traded company to provide a source of income for your mistress, for passing that mistress off to another employee when you got tired of her. Oh my. Or, you know, just wanted to see her blossom into a better career, perhaps. Right. John Laurinaitis, Johnny Ace, was uh, the executive that let me let me back this up because we haven't really laid the foundation here for our audience. We just assume that 
everybody knows important news stories like who is McMahon sleeping with and what is, <laughs> I what certainly is the compensation that woman would get for that. So first of all, there, there were, uh, <laughs> let's hope it's good and high. There, I think the total uh, hush money paid, if I may use that term, uh, was around $20 million over multiple people. The, okay. the uh, one was a former uh, female referee. That would go back probably into the, the 90s where that woman first alleged her, uh, the issues and that, that was settled. Uh, then there was, uh, some, uh, female wrestler, I believe. And I, I assume the other individuals were female, but I don't know that. And I'm not, even, well, I can only presume. Well, I, I and I'm not I'm, even saying that every settlement of the, cause there was a number of people like about four, I think that, that settled. Prosecution is willing to uh, stipulate. Yeah. But one that, you know, there's always that one that upsets the apple cart and everybody notices. And that was the most recent one who was employed as a paralegal at uh, WWE. They, this individual female met Vince McMahon at the condo complex they shared. Now, you might think Vince McMahon would have a mansion somewhere. Yeah, and sure. And he does. Uh, and if you were to have a wife, they might be in that mansion. And yeah. McMahon does have a wife, Linda McMahon, who was Ooh. the head of the Small Business Administration under President Trump. The, yeah, I kind of remember that. Yeah, Way back, is he's a... Uh, financial supporter of the presidential campaign and Donald Trump in general. They had business relationships, I believe, back in Trump Towers where some of the, or maybe it was Atlantic City, some of the Trump properties uh, hosted WrestleMania, one of them. And, but anyway, this paralegal was employed, and I don't know what the, the going rate for a paralegal is in Stanford, Connecticut, but I would think $100,000 was a pretty generous starting salary, which is the number that came out in the, when this first hit the fan. Uh, but she must have done extremely good work because she was <laughs> a raise to 200000 a year. Okay. And somewhere along that timeline of employment, uh, she left the service of uh, Vince McMahon at WWE and then uh, became... Uh, available for uh, employee tasks at for John Laurinaitis, who was the head of talent relations, and you know other other talk show hosts would see those descriptions and take all kinds of liberties with innuendo and suggestive talk. But here we're above that <laughs> because I speak know, for yourself. I know the 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 listeners of. Reigns and Edge, courtesy of the Free Talk Live Network, can can fill in the blanks for themselves probably better than we can. So, <laughs> what, what? But what is the point? Sure, Mark, you, you can bring this tawdry story of passion, misplaced desires, misplaced power. But what is the real lesson here for our, our listeners? 
I think if you uh, purchase stock in an c- entertainment company that is uh, already somewhat seedy, you can expect some seedy behavior. And that the FCC ought to butt out. Um, I mean, really, ultimately, I, this is mild compared to what I might have imagined. Well, there, there $20 million of funds... $20 million is real money. The gist of the issue is you could raise the issue that uh, the funds of the corporation were misused and mishandled. But yep. I believe I he end. has um, paid the company back. and Or at least alleges that the company is paid back. And really, twenty million dollars, or even if it's thirty million, if it's a bigger number than what I when last time I checked was, you know, for a a multi-billion-dollar revenue company, that's really the kind of money that he probably find under the cushions at Vince McMahon's office there that might have fallen out of someone that was reclining on the couch. So, and it's probably worth uh, pointing out that whatever the investigation is, is probably going to run into seven or eight figures, too. Um, I mean, if I, I guess I have a difficult time finding the crime, I don't have a difficult time finding the, uh, you know, the tawdry right. and scandalous behavior. If there is a class action lawsuit by shareholders, though, you're you're going to raise your hand to the SEC and say, come investigate us. I mean, not, well, not I, liberally. It's like, metaphorically, it's like saying, come here and investigate us. Sure. The, uh, the shareholders have every right to file a lawsuit against um, WWE if that's what they want to do. As far as I'm concerned, their investigation should not be funded by the U.S. taxpayer, which is presumably what's going on when the SEC pops its little head in, um, you know, That's their business. When you bought WWE stock, you said, I'll investigate these crooks myself. Thanks. No, you didn't. (laughs) You should have. Why? Because, uh, you know. What resources do you have compared to the SEC to investigate the wrongdoing once the wrongdoing has been established? If it's class action, then I have a class of people who uh, have the resources to go ahead and do this. Actually, the shareholders. So the SEC is the law enforcement uh, for the securities that are being traded. Indeed, they are. Um, I think that, that you know that's the the they're a regulatory body, and uh, as the, I just don't see an allegation here that rises to the level of the SEC. Then again, I have seen few allegations that uh, make me think the SEC, which is, to the best I can tell, an unconstitutional agency. If it's not mentioned in the Constitution, it's unconstitutional. So, you know, what's it? That decision from? Uh, I would call it the Tenth Amendment is where I got it from. When it says anything not specifically mentioned in this document uh, should be remanded to the states and the people. What about the part where we have a legislative branch that creates laws t- that can be enforced in the country? That's the argument. Uh, but to me, uh, I think that it, you know, it, it falls into that the Supreme Court should call it unconstitutional because it isn't part explicitly mentioned of the Constitution. Uh, you know, I mean, has America grown from the time the Constitution was written? Sure. But the SEC? Eh. What do you, really? 
would we be that much worse off with this without this regulatory body? Actually, yeah. I mean, there's a history of being worse off than that. With the, there is, and hopefully, we one learns from mistakes. Well, the whole thing that your your whole premise there that individuals we have the whole period before the Great Depression and into the 1800s where where people were ripped off by shady operators that that sure. were going and getting investment. The blue sky laws, for example, that where people were promised ridiculous returns and with no way to check that. We didn't have an internet back in the 1800s, and yet these people could... Uh, so with the internet, we don't need the SEC? Life savings. So with the internet, we don't need the SEC? I, I'll stipulate. Um, no, what I would say is, is that the NASDAQ and the NYSE, these organizations should be regulating their own, the own, their own people that are listed. I just think that it sounds a lot like... Uh, I mean, Here's the problem. Here's the impropriety. What if the SEC is run by a Democrat? It has been. Joe Kennedy was a heck of a head of the SEC. And what if Vince McMahon, uh, whose wife was uh, part of the Trump administration, uh, is considered by these Democrats to be a bad guy? And what if that enforcement tool is used to go after Republicans? And what if it was the tables are turned, right? Like, what if it's Democrat, Republican head of the SEC who's going after Democrats? Because it I mean, looks like. I will answer your question. Let me just also point out that the improprieties have already been uh, announced by the company itself. And, and acknowledged. So. Uh, I just don't think that it's so a, a real impropriety. The SEC was used as a vindictive uh, body against Republicans by a Democratic administration? Or vice versa. Or vice versa. Do we want that? No, nobody wants that. No. That it looks like it. it. You don't have an SEC. <laughs> I think that uh, if the SEC should, uh, has a job, it ought to be not trying to drown every cryptocurrency that their, uh, um, you know, their friends don't hold. Um, you know, the SEC looks like a corrupt organization to me. And... I think that they're just poking their nose in business they don't need to be. And it looks like they're going after Republicans for the sake of going after to Rain's Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. In addition to being one of the world's first cryptocurrencies, Dash was the first crypto project to have a decentralized autonomous organization that to this day continues to improve and promote Dash. Every month, 10% of the mining rewards go into a treasury. Anyone with one Dash to spend can put forward a proposal to the Dash masternodes to vote on. The masternodes vet the proposals and decide which ones move forward and are funded by the Treasury. In fact, that's exactly how we got this sponsorship. Nowadays, DAOs are plentiful, but Dash paved the way by doing it first, nearly a decade ago. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. Welcome back to Reigns and Edge, where we just had a tense discussion about the importance of the SEC, 
Vince McMahon's pencil thin mustache, the going rate <laughs> for a paralegal providing extra services in uh, Stamford, Connecticut, and much, much more. But Mark, remind the audience the point you were making. Well, I think my point is part of a larger point is that uh, my bias is against gov- uh, federal government regulation. My bias is against uh, the SEC. Uh, my bias is against uh, fishing trips, uh, looking for, you know, maybe something's been done here that's illegal. And so uh, I guess basically I'm questioning whether the SEC should even be exist. I, uh, exist. I think it's a, uh, it's, it's too easily abused as a cudgel against whoever is politically uh, disenfranchised at this time. All right. But well said there, expressing your point of view. And actually, since hopefully this show will continue in the weeks to come, I am not going to try and move you off your petard there, <laughs> this show, because we've got lots of other things to, to cover. But you did make me think of just sort of this general um, conflict and struggle between you know, the libertarianisms and uh, the... I don't even want to say progressivism because even outside of the libertarian uh, philosophy, even conservatives want some kind of government and they, especially the kind of government that gives them what they want. The best terms I can come up with both sound pejorative, but I'm going to give them to you and you can decide what you think about them. There's the term authoritarian, which Certainly sounds pejorative, right? Like nobody wants to be part of an authoritarian or an advocate for authoritarian governments. But there are certainly people that think that, uh, you know, the, the government is the best person, best organization to decide how any given problem is solved. And then there are the, the, the other term is statist, which is somebody whose bias is towards an organization that would claim a monopoly privilege and the use of violence in a given landmass, um, like the term state is a term that was, say, as late as the early 1800s, expected, is used very often to describe a government. A a state and a government were kind of the same synonymous. Whereas now, because the United States is the most important country in the world, it kind of means one of the 50 states. And But those should mean the, you know, supreme uh, law of the land in their area too, but they don't. Because... As Jefferson said, it is, the, it is the nature of government to grow, and the federal government has grown uh, very powerful over time. It was just supposed to be weights and measures and, like, the military, post roads and some stuff like that, and now it's everything. It rules the whole globe. Okay. All right. I'm glad you cleared that up for us, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at it more um, the point of view that there is private property, there is public communally owned property, there's other ways of organizing this. And you made me think of a discussion I had uh, with a friend. Well, if you call texting a discussion, and if you call ignoring somebody's texting a discussion when you get not wanting to be trapped into the circular loop of texting response and uh, counter response. 
And this is a really great thing about radio, right? Like, it's not like Facebook where you can write this uh, paragraph, this well-thought-out paragraph, and then somebody picks out the smallest detail out of it, responds to that detail in a way that is completely inappropriate, and then ignores everything else you've said. Where here on radio, you can hold the other party, whomever they might be, to account and make them answer the question. Could you answer the question? Yeah. Oh, that was that was just sort of a rhetorical would you answer. I'm just pointing out the advantage of radio in this way. Yes. Yes. Which is why everyone should support their local radio station where they're hearing Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live network. And thank your lucky stars for that. But uh, And if you're listening to us on podcast, please uh, rate our podcast, comment on our podcast, uh, you know, say all, do all kinds of nice stuff. Thanks. Yes. And back to what I was going to digress us into. So as you may have heard, Mark, I, I've, at this stage of my life, I, I, I play a lot of pickleball. And not to stereotype it as just the old people's games, because it, it is the fastest growing sport in the United States of this America, as you will find out if you speak to any business involved in pickleball, they, <laughs> they will tell you that repeatedly. Yes. But it, it is. And you're young by the standards of people I've played pickleball with, um, I must well, say. Well, yeah, but you just play over here at, I'm talking about the public courts. There's there's a spectrum, and, and okay. I, I play quite a few tournaments now. And I, I I'm not saying my skill level is at a high skill skill level, but my uh, physical exertion is at a high level. Uh, okay, I am much more mobile and um, quicker than I have been in a couple decades. So that that is that's that's a low bar. It's and I'm not bragging. I'm just saying it's a I'm playing like just a 50-year-old or 45-year-old. Anyway, <laughs> I dropped that. That, that. that is important. So anyway, last week I played at the 6th Annual Gainesville, uh, Florida in Invitational Indoor Pickleball Tournament. That's where the University of Florida is. Uh, talk about seeing some younger players. There definitely were younger players there. Luckily for me, there's age divisions. And you're, as I told someone that w when I said I was in a tournament, and I went, <gasps> and I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> in pickleball and a tournament, they can always find a group as old as you and as bad as you to compete with. And so that's, you, you just have to find the right group to sign up for. It's like jujitsu. I've done uh, jujitsu tournaments, and you know they've got white belts over forty-five, and yeah, like everybody. Right. Uh, but it's a beautiful facility there. It's, uh, in fact, if I were do, to they have to salute you as a as a University of Florida graduate. Must you be saluted by the uh, attending students? No, I'm not students? a University of Florida graduate. I'm a University of South. I attended University of Florida, but I graduated from the University of South Florida. Oh, that's news to It was a 17-year journey. By the way, I, my degree is in finance, so don't think I'm a, um, a non-realist far, as far as economic things go. Uh, but anyway, uh, getting back to it, this is a beautiful facility. Only about a quarter of it was being used, and there were enough room for 16 indoor courts there. Uh, but it's, it's a community, uh, county-owned community facility. Uh, they have 
indoors in air conditioning, a full, I guess it's not quarter mile now because I'm stuck in the English measuring system, but whatever the, the, the equivalent, near equivalent of a quarter mile uh, uh, running track is in meters, they have that and they have, and then down the middle they have the, for like the hundred meter dash, stuff like that. They have uh, volleyball nets that come down from the ceiling so they can have a multi-court volleyball tournament. Beautiful, as I said, beautiful facility. And this was the sixth year they've done the, the pickleball tournament. And I show, sent some pictures. And I'll, I'll even go a little bit beyond this. In the Gainesville, Florida, probably from when I was there, 79 to 83, uh, might have had a little bit of under 100,000 people, and it's now around 300,000 people. So a very high rate of growth, especially compared to most of the rest of the United States. Have a, the big expansion of the University of Florida there, a lot of tech businesses and other things that, that come there and that have fostered that growth. Uh, very similar to where uh, when you're in Florida and where I am all the time in Manatee County, where we grew from when the same period we're talking about when you were started at the comic book store of about 100,000 people to counting to 400,000 people. That same rate of growth. Well, lots of people talk about planned communities. And again, the, 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 um, the thumb on the scale of the, the government getting what they want in planning and things like that. But, and here in, we have Lakewood Ranch, which sprang up in the last 25 years as supposedly this ideal planned community. Um, and they had you know, the, the little downtown, and I don't want to digress too much on this. But in, in, where this uh, athletic facility was, that took up about a half a city block. Uh, it was in the middle of this commercial residential development that amazed me as someone that had lived there 40 years ago in that it had the big box stores like the Bass Pro Shop and like Dick's Sporting Goods and a multiplex cinema. And But rather than being a long strip center like most people can identify with, like, you know, you come to a big strip center and there's a Target and a Dick's Sporting Goods and a Best Buy and, you know, yeah. like a half-mile walk from one end to the other with this big parking lot beside of it. And I, I'm pretty sure most people that in the United States that are listening to this can picture that scene. Sure. Instead of that, for this development, which was probably a, a uh, maybe a mile and a half square, picture a checkerboard. Much, much like a bunch of city blocks. So you had like a Bass Pro Shop on one city block with a parking lot. And then next to it, you had a city block with maybe 500 apartments. And then on the other side of that would be the Best Buy. And then, you know, move to the side. And now you've got another 500 apartments where you actually, and then a multiplex, you know, there and then, some of the city blocks were actually, <coughs> excuse me, uh, parking lots, you know, parking garages for the people coming to the commercial areas. And so you had all this, and you could drive to where you wanted to shop. There was parking nearby. But you could actually live in those apartments. And, and pretty much do all your there. shopping there. And walk to a... Uh, you know, a, the Bass Pro Shop or the, the movies or the, the food the restaurants in the, the food sector there. I mean, it was really a well-laid-out 
situation well, that I had, I, I imagine have what little I know about the government there, but more the attitude of the government, it had to be run through the planning commission and meet the specifications that they wanted in that area of the city and the county. So what do you think about well, that? I think that uh, it sounds like the, the, the zoning boards are finally beginning to um, return to more organic sorts of uh, zoning. So uh, th- that's just, you know, that's just an assessment. Maybe they're never going to, but they're experimenting in this realm. In fact, without zoning boards, and uh, for instance, uh, the city of uh, Houston doesn't have one. And does it have its notable eccentricities? Sure, it does. But this is how humans actually want their stuff laid out. And the fact that you're considering it unusual, the, it's, it's the zebra among horses, uh, as it were, is an indictment against zoning boards, not a, uh, some kind of laudable praise for them. Uh, the fact that people have been disallowed from running little grocery stores out of their houses, little uh, restaurants out of their houses, heretofore has uh, really been you know, the problem all along. The, as a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that the How epidemic of people running little restaurants out of their houses from what I was describing. I'm just saying that people want to be able to walk from where they live to their grocery store, to a restaurant, okay. to the corner bar. And that uh, drunk driving, the epidemic of drunk driving in the United States is perpetuated by the fact that we don't have corner bars any longer. That you have to drive two, five, 15 miles in order to go to the bar and hang out, hang out with one's friends. And, and how do you get back? Well, you should use Uber, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that's my advice to you. However, many people don't. And uh, it's my opinion that zoning laws are actually what create, uh, in many cases, drunk driving in America. Well, anyway, why, why I thought that about that situation is because when I was there, I took some pictures inside and outside of the, the athletic uh, complex that was there. And I sent them to different people I know who... Sell. Not me. Well, you will get some. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, Mainly it was uh, my immediate family, but I did send it to one person who just to, to, you know, tickle him a little bit, nudge him a little bit. Maybe that's the word. And I, he, I sent him the pictures. Oh, it looks like a nice facility. And I said, yeah, socialism at its finest with a, you know, a laughing face behind it. So that he would know that I was teasing him. Yes. But even that, for this particular individual, um, he couldn't let that go. Yes. And he, he texted me back, capitalism built that. And he gave me the tax rates of the county and the <laughs> contractors that built it. And all this other stuff. And as I said, I didn't take the bait to respond to all that. But here we go into socialism versus capitalism, et cetera. Yeah, the contractors are capitalists, but it's local government-owned property 
the government of the the local that the local public elected and pays taxes for it's a you know you can't call it the county the state but for this purposes we'll call it state owned state owned property that's used communally with all the people that live within that state aka county of Alaska. here's what i don't uh, i need to get some clarity on the piece of property upon which this was built was originally owned by the county, or are you talking about the super ownership that is ev- uh, having to pay taxes? The because well, every, everybody, all of every my my contention would be that all of property within a given county in the state of Florida um, is owned by the county. In so much as you must pay property tax on that property in order oh, to you, stay on that property. Hair is way too fine for this text. Okay, that I was having. I I would say that the county owns that i mean that they 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 direct what happens on it and who's employed there and they they directed that that building be built so this is public housing well this would be like if if you it'd be like a park a a park is a socialist uh asset it is yeah Um, it is socialized but I mean, like, so if you, it depends on the definition of socialism, right? And co- socialism and capitalism and these terms get uh, bandied about without great definitions. It well, depends on if you mean from 40 or 50 years ago, too. And that's why state ownership of the means of production or the assets. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, county owned land with uh, county administrated apartments i'm willing to stipulate is you know socialism in some manner or another it sounds like a very wealthy place that's able to because whatever the county's doing they're doing it far less efficiently than a any organization that's administering an apartment complex now people may very be very happy there and you know people who are subsidized are often very happy uh it, it stacks the firemen <laughs> would you would you rather be uh, run by the county, or would you rather be a for profit or a, a you know a, a community funded organization based on your own work? Um, you know they're going to figure out pretty quickly they like the county and their uh, their, their stuff. Well, which is going back to my nineteen seventies economic classes and yep. early eighties classes is the the premise of a mixed economy was an accepted. Uh, premise of a way to organize assets and, and resources. But Indeed. We could, we could probably follow this road more, but I don't know if who I'm talking about is ever going to listen to this segment <laughs> or if he would even recognize who, that he was being talked about, but he probably would because he'd remember the thing well, about the, uh, I'll say this one thing is the way I look at socialism and the way I look at capitalism. And I'm not I'm not saying that there aren't going to be restrictions on the marketplace. There certainly are. They may be private. They may be public. Whatever they are, there's going to be restrictions because people will demand them. Um, The restrictions in the marketplace are like building. It's like a kid putting a little. sandy features inside of a river that he's constructed with a water hose or or trying to build a a dam. The water's going to flow. And it's either going to flow through 
over or around whatever these uh, restrictions are. Now, that's not to say that that's not more desirable, right? Like sometimes you want the river to go that way. But, um, you know, that's ultimately capitalism is the river and socialism or statism or authoritarianism or whatever term we want to use is the whatever bulwarks are put in its place, that they will always be eroded, they will always be undermined, they will always be gotten around. Mark, uh, correct me if this is a false memory. I'm shifting gears just slightly. Way back at the Time Machine 2. That's the name of the comic book store that I worked at from the time I was 12 to later years, no, yeah, no, we didn't really travel through time there. (laughs) Not that we told you about. Um, That we were having a discussion, this would be your your mid-teenage years, I think. Probably Uh maybe even had your driver's license by then. And I said to you that the first government was when one uh, caveman or whatever phrase I used, early tribal person, realized that he could bash the head in of somebody when they're asleep with his club. (laughs) That's how government got organized. And you thought that was very insightful back then in my perhaps real memory or Imagined memory. I'm not sure. Sounds right. You, but you don't have a memory of that conversation. I have been, I, I, I remember the conversation. I don't remember it being with you, but I don't remember who it might have been with. Um, well, who you know, else would it have been with? Well, I mean, over time, I've talked to lots of people with this same insight. Government is force, right? No, like, I'm fundamentally, talking, talking about the club. You'll do what, you, you'll do what you're told or you'll get your head bashed in. Yeah. But you have to think about, no, 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 Mark. This is very specific insight. This <laughs> is, you've got to put your place in the tribal tribal society where normally it would be a challenge where the stronger person would fight the stronger, another strong yep. person for control. But the person with the brain that realized he could bash the head in when the other person was asleep then could organize the other people, like-minded people of him to, to support him in the bashing in of the brain. And you have that joining of a common interest, early government. Well, not it's just, also not just dominant individualism. So the, uh, the, the, the strong man who would uh, be bashed in while sleeping, the, his incentive then is to reward the largest amount of people within the tribe and then just subjugate the minority. No, it could be just to um, benefit enough of the nearly strong enough people to support you to take that uh, step to bash the guy's head in the eve, in the night. Um, This this is how chimpanzee troops work is, is it's not the strong chimpanzee. It's the three or four next strongest chimpanzees that you need to organize. Consensus, yes. Yeah. Consensus building. That's what it is. Indeed. And you could, and there's always a consensus to take money from someone else. That's what socialism is, right? It's, uh, it's, it's you know, well, some kind of authoritarianism until you're... Definitions. I'm sticking with the definition of how, how resources are allocated and ownership of those assets and resources. But you can you can jump into whatever decade of definitions you want. I like Margaret Thatcher's that uh, socialism works until you run out of other people's money. Uh, you're still talking about something different than I am. 
<laughs> anyway, that doesn't happen anyway. Socialism doesn't work in the countries that don't have other people's money. I know that much. There's always more labor to create more money. Yeah, but socialism doesn't know how to distribute the uh, the pricing mechanisms and the labor in order to be successful. I didn't say that we shouldn't have uh, the laws of the market and and be respectful of them, but we need to be respectful of the laws of the market of advertising, and we need to make sure important messages get heard on Reigns and Edge on Free Talk Live Network. The Shire Free Church offers a sanctuary to those seeking an escape from state churches. The Shire Free Church is an interfaith, diverse group of people that may not share identical theological beliefs. As a member in or minister of the Shire Free Church, you are a sovereign individual and may be the faith of your choice. We don't claim to have all of the answers. We are open to all peaceful people. We want to learn from each other. What unifies the Shire Free Church and its diverse members is peace, love, and liberty. There are many paths to God, one for every individual. The Shire Free Church does not define a specific path beyond these parameters that must be your foundation. Peace as your way. Love as your guide. And liberty as your light. Learn more at church.shiresociety.com. That's church. .shiresociety.com Free Talk Live Welcome back to Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. I am Henry Reigns. And I'm Mark Edge. And I am flying this like a space shuttle. <laughs> the space shuttle doesn't fly anymore, does it, Mark? I don't know. Did they retire all of them? Oh, Sounds yeah, I like, I think they did. X is what sends it up. No wonder we were experiencing some of the uh, turbulence on the technical side here. I, I need to upgrade my uh, space driver's license here. And, but none of you have to worry about that because we have a great hour in front of you, something that's going to elucidate, illuminate, and educate our audience about things that they don't get anywhere else except here on Reigns and Edge in some form of agreement or disagreement. Uh, but, Mark, how are you feeling these days? As far as, like, the economy goes? Oh, um, I just want to know how. You know, I care about you, Mark. I want to know how you're feeling. you got a good sense of being, well-being. Um, wow. I think that I exist in a world that is different than uh, the average person. I travel a great deal. Um, you know, my business is largely insulated, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm, as far as I go, I'm not a good person to ask about the economy. I see right to the material world on that. Yeah. And you're isolated in the, your material world. But I will tell the audience, you have existed in your own world for <laughs> the decades that I have known you. I, I agreed. But not always in the best material worlds. Nor I, for that matter. But right now, whether you feel it or not, whether you feel that sense of well-being out there in the United States of America and the listening audience in general, any place that the economy touches you, uh, whether you want to admit it or not, it's getting better. I am here to tell you it's getting better. Just this week. The Are they green shoots, Henry? I, I don't know, but I, if there's too many, I'll go get the weed eater. 
<laughs> but I don't, don't worry, you won't have to. Green shoots, green sheets, green whatever. But I do know this. I do know that there was a CPI, Consumer Price Index report this week, and it was exceeded the positive expectations that we are in a situation where from June to July, the CPI went up 0.2 tenths of a month per, for the month. That's 0.2 tenths percent. The prices in the uh, consumer price index rose that much from June to July. So if we were to project that out 12 months, that would be 2.4%, getting very close to what the Federal Reserve has as their 2% inflation target, which is, without going into the details of how they decide that, what we should all know is just like Rice Krispies or Cheerios is good for you and good for your indigestion or digestion or whatever, but it's getting very close to what they want. So that means it's getting very close to maybe not raising interest rates anymore, maybe not causing mortgages to go up, maybe getting close to lowering interest rates and making things more affordable. If you look in the rearview mirror, that means how the aggregate of the monthly increases were. We're looking at 3.2% inflation, which is a heck of a lot better than the 9% or so that it was several months ago when we were looking at that. And now, I don't know about green shoots, but it's sunshine and rainbows all at once from my point of view. So are we in a recession? No. Okay. No, we aren't even... Some people are... You know, interesting thing about if, if anyone were to watch business television like CNBC and you're listening to the experts, those experts don't get to say what they think. It's much like watching, uh, you know, the White House press secretary or something like mm -hmm. that. They say what they're supposed to say. So when you see, unless they actually own the company, they're going to say what they've been told to say. So if for the last six months... Uh, the, the investment advisor has been told, we see a recession on the horizon. Even if they get the good news that I am here to bring you, the, the good news, they will say, well, it's always a possibility that we won't have a recession. But right now, we still see a recession in the, the, sometime in the future there. They'll hedge it a little bit. And if it, whatever it is. They, oh, we should be in cyclical stocks. Oh, you should be in tech stocks. Nothing changes until the people that give them their direction changes their opinion. So that was just a little digression there. Never I, I agree. out your own thoughts on things. Uh, as, far, as far as my thoughts on whether we're a recession? Anyone should, to thine own self, be true. And if you're true to yourself, be true to some of your... Thoughts and ideas and perceptions about the way the world is. Well, I like the definition of a recession is, is uh, you know, when the economy's down, it's a recession. When the economy's down and you don't have a job, it's a depression. And uh, it just kind of goes to show that all that matters is what's going on for you specifically. Um, you know, I would say that from what I can tell, it's not a recession. There's too many people traveling. There's too many people doing things. Um, 
you know, and from what I can tell, the economy is growing. Now, how could it not grow after it was shoved into the trunk of a car for uh, two years? Um, you know, of course, it has to get out and grow. But, you know, by and large, no, I would say we're not. Well, in if we go by the data, and the data actually has, even when we were shoved in the trunk of the car, screaming to be let out, telling, telling the world that we are gasping for air and we suffer from claustrophobia, we were still growing. Maybe that's why it felt so tight in that trunk. But <laughs> in the more recent data points, things, like I said, sunshine and rainbows across the sky. And you don't see that much often. The gross domestic product reported in the second quarter showed an annualized growth of 2.4%. Isn't that an interesting coincidence that the rate of growth is the same as the inflation, but we have even better news than that. The rate of growth for the gross domestic product was higher than expected, and economist analyst Stephen Ratner noted that as the second quarter, the U.S. economy is over 6% larger than it was before COVID after adjusting for inflation. So looking beyond the quarter, looking past uh, backwards for the last two years or so, whatever you whatever your demarcation is for the beginning of COVID, we are our six percent bigger than that plus the the amount of inflation. So six percent plus the amount of inflation is a bigger number than six percent. I'm right, I'm right. on the limb on say that. Uh, consumer spending and business investment is up seven point seven percent. In fact, if, for those of you old enough to remember the Great Recession of 2008, uh, 09, and into the recovery of 2011, we are growing, coming, we are coming out of the recovery growing at a rate almost nine times faster, nine times greater than we did out of the last economic crisis, which is a good thing. Yeah, I would say that's a good thing. I, I certainly don't want to see bad things happen for people's families. Uh, I would say that there are people that would like to see the uh, whatever growth there is in the economy hold off until after the results are counted for the 2024 election. Say that again, please. There are people who would like to see whatever benefits there are of, of the new, better economy, the growing economy, held off. Let's just not report these until after uh, November 2024. Well, who would want that? People who want to win. Because as the Clintons said long ago, I think it still holds true. True, It's the economy, stupid. And if gas prices are high, if uh, people are having trouble making ends meet, they're going to vote for whomever is not in office at the time. Well, I think if we look at projections, let me preface this. I, I know that the president, whoever the president is, whether it was George H.W. Bush when Clinton was running against him or uh, Ronald Reagan when he was running against Jimmy Carter, or we can go back through the list quite a, quite a ways, people pin the responsibility on the president of the United States. And really in an economy as big and sophisticated as ours, I think the president as an individual has very little effect on making it succeed. The president as an individual can have a much greater effect on, ma- on screwing it up. 
I would agree with that. Yeah. So I, there was a some analogy that was given at one point that I really like is it's very much like congratulating the bull rider on the performance of the bull. It's um, you know the bull rider. Think about that. Wait a minute. Now the the bull at the rodeo, the bull uh-huh. rider, where it's like six or eight seconds is a heck of a ride. Heck of a eight trip. seconds is the, the the one that you're ho- hoping to get to. Eight seconds, and you're congratulating the bull, the bull rider, rider, but it's really on the performance of the bull. Okay. So really, what's the bull rider got to do with the bull? The bull rider's just hanging on. And hoping for the best. Um, you know, any bull rider will tell you that every ride is different. And all they're doing is trying to, you know, do what they do, perform, look like they're having a great time there at the top of the bull. And everything else is just showmanship. Hmm. How many of the bull riders have you talked to? I don't know. Seems like it's what they'd say. I did, uh, however, I was worked for 1065 CTQ in Bradenton, Florida, and a DJ Country of ours. Western station, wasn't it? Country Western Station. A uh, DJ of ours was asked to be, uh, to ride a bull, and she wore one of the protective vests that, uh, you know, one wears, and a helmet and the whole thing. And it's a good thing, because the bull kicked her off and stepped on her. Hmm. And so, ladies and gentlemen, if you're not a uh, certified bull rider, don't do that. Was she hurting afterwards? Yes, she was hurting. Um, was it permanent hurting or just uh, did it eventually pass? She was young, and uh, I don't recall anyone talking, saying anything really negative happened, but I sure worried. About, I, I still think about it. But did you see her months later? Yeah, I think so. I had uh, memory problems from COVID. Some things I just don't remember, Henry. Well, at least you're not remembering because of tra- trauma from it all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I see you're making me digress again. Yeah, I do that. You, you, I, I, I'm out there with my goal in sight, and then you pull me back into a digression. Have you ever seen the beginning of a, a bull riding event? When they let the bulls out at the very beginning. Yes. Yep. And the bulls know they're the star. And they they prance and show off for the crowd. They know that they're being featured right then. You you agree? I, I, I you know, they the bulls that are loved the most are the ones that prance the most, yes. Well they, they introduce the bulls and they come out and they do their little circle and if the bull wasn't doing that to show off what, why is it doing that? It certainly seems like they are. Yeah. How can you be the bull of the woods if you don't want to show off? <laughs> Old Dusty Road fans would, would know what I was talking about there. Uh, no, All right. No, no, no. So I think we were talking about data points that were good, that, which would have been recent data or historical data. But you brought up the fact that what's it going to be in 2024 when people are voting and how are they going to take it? Well, we could go off on another tangent about 
where inflation, where the price of gas is and where the price of the things people buy the most are, how that makes them feel. But as far as the economy, the economy is looking good according to people and financial experts. One such would be the Morgan Stanley, the global financial services company. They released uh, a, um, a statement about last Friday, and they said that they, now, see, this is where they credit Biden's policies. And I would say, in as a parenthesis to that, what I would, what they're calling Biden's policies should be actually termed as the bipartisan bills that he's managed to shepherd through to where he got to sign them into law. Where his, not, and not even he, although I think as far as, um, Congress, Biden is a more hands-on uh, negotiator and ego stroker than Obama or George Bush were uh, with the personalities in Congress uh, because Biden there. came from there and yeah. he knows he knows how to stroke an ego anyway to cajole a favor to horse trade to look the bull in the rear and face the situation so <laughs> Those things that uh, Morgan Stanley's chief economist, Ellen Zetner, was writing about was the bipartisan infrastructure law, the Inflation Reduction Act. I know these are euphemisms. We don't have to accept them as the, the actual uh, description of what happens. The Chips and Science Act. And even uh, some of the, the last of the... Uh, COVID stimulus bill that came in early in the, uh, the Biden administration, which I think was primarily Democrats, Democrats pushing that. Um, the, the manufacturing construction held, uh, prior to these laws, uh, say during the 2010s, the manufacturing construction in the U.S. was 50 to 80 billion a year. It's now at 189 billion. So even with 10% inflation, that's still a big number, big increase. In half of the U.S. states, job creation is strong and unemployment is at or near 50-year lows, uh, lowering inflation rates, as we talked about just a few minutes ago, uh, is uh, uh, leading consumer confidence to be its highest level in two years. Uh, one thing that favors President Biden, and he is a little more hands-on on this, is union contract negotiation. You may remember that we had a near rail strike, uh, I think it was about six months ago. And one of the unions, they were looking for uh, sick time, I believe. And Biden convinced uh, the unions, and one in particular union, there are several rail unions, so I don't want know which one to single out, uh, almost held everything up based on that. But he said, I'll work, I'm going to work, we're, we're going to work on this. We're going to see what we can do for you. you got to have some faith. Well, it turns out that just recently announced that sick leave is now part of the benefits package for the rail workers. So they got a, a very substantial increase. I think it was even retroactive on how they were received. And now the, the Democrats have often been the partners of labor, right? Yeah, but... That's, I'm just saying where the direction of different things are going. 
you know, it, it's one thing for the Fed to want to uh, slow the economy down. It's another thing when the Fed wants unemployment to go up and wages to go down, which is, if you read some of their Fed speak, is what they want. What we what we want as a general in this country is inflation to come down and wages to go up. And in the Teamster Union agreement that was just reached, you know, there was a, a near strike on the United Parcel Service. Uh, they All 340,000 workers participated in this new five-year agreement, and including those for part-time employees that got substantial raises. And now the a, a UPS driver, his, their, I was going to say his income, but that's sexist. The his or her income is now at the upper level a hundred and seventy thousand a year, and lower level is a little bit below one hundred and fifty thousand. That's that's a darn good Some nice numbers. Yeah, yeah. Although I've seen a couple of the ones, you know, they they have gotten on a more strict schedule. They were always on such a super strict schedule, but now with GPS and everything else, they're being watch so much. One of the, the, the new contracts is they've got a, a phase in air conditioning in the trucks because you know, they still don't have air conditioning in those trucks they drive around. And there's That's a, hard to believe. Yes. There's a couple of drivers, one in particular that I would see every afternoon here in our neighborhood. Our, we have a, a closed community, so I would see the same one circling around to the different homes. I really thought, he was probably only in the late 30s, that he was going to have a heart attack in front of me sometimes. <laughs> but I, I digress again. I do that a lot. Um, let's see. Uh, also, individuals filed two point. This is good news too, Mark. Two point seven million applications to start a business between January and June of this year. That's a five percent increase over last year. People. That's well, probably all those businesses that went under during uh, COVID. Yeah. Anyway, I could go on about this and some of the other details of this, but. In general, and this is actually going to lead us to something else in our, our next segment, uh, is the reindustrialization of the United States of America. You know, we, we ship the jobs overseas. The giant sucking sound Ross Perot talked about 30 years ago of jobs going to Mexico. America, it's, it's morning in America again, Mark. I'm well, pulling out all the old euphemisms. I like... Uh, I like the idea that manufacturing is returning to the United States. Um, uh, it sounds like a great thing to me. I wonder how much this is all orchestrated, right? Like, you know, ju just to, I, I mean, it's clearly manufacturing would be stronger in the United States had it never been eviscerated. Right. It's almost like the deindustrialization of America to the lowest labor cost and the wealth it created for the people that owned the assets that were benefiting from that was by design. And now as their influence wanes in the places where the low income has now become a higher income, it's time to reindustrialize America. And I'd also say that for the people at the top, I, I'm all for uh, skilled employees having a say at where they work. Um, you know, I have some real problems with labor unions and their collusion with uh, governments, but um, I have no problem with uh, employees telling their bosses how they want to uh, sell their labor. 
and what's the best thing to do with any given business, maybe the business they've dedicated uh, decades to. And when you just go ahead and pick that business up and move it halfway around the world, then that person becomes far less influential. And he's not going to get his influence back ever. Well, good point. Not at that. If we reindustrialize America, what does that mean for China? We are going to find out on the other side of these very important messages. You're listening to Brains and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. Eleutheromania, the insatiable desire for freedom. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. Welcome back to Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. I'm Henry Reigns. And I'm Mark Edge. And we are taking you around the world today. We just told you how great the U.S. economy is looking, the prospects for it, whether you agree or not. That's what the data is telling us right now. Things can change, but that's the way it is at the moment. So, how is the reindustrialization of America, our Western allies in Europe, in the UK, in the Pacific Rim, like Japan, uh, in our up-and-coming junior partner that's a huge partner, India, some of those places. Aren't they one of the founders of BRICS, trying to undermine the U.S. superiority? Well, they're also... Why don't they get in line? They are also a charter member of the Quad, that's our group. That's, I believe, it's Japan and Europe and the U.S. and India. And, of course, U.K. is part of Europe. And Well, actually, U.K. is part of the English-speaking Five Eyes countries that, you know, the equal partners, but some are more equal than others. And Well, I mean, how is New Zealand going to be equal to the United States? <laughs> you know, like, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, they get to come along for the ride. Yeah. It's better to be in the car than to be in the Volkswagen running behind you. I support these trade organizations if they are constructed in such a fashion that it looks, that it's uh, fair trade. And in my opinion, you don't need a phone book worth of uh, documents. Well, what? In order to, a phone book. Phone yeah, book. I know. <laughs> Fine. You, you don't need an encyclopedia's worth, never mind. An encyclopedia? <laughs> you don't need a stack of documents as high as your hip in order to create fair trade. There you go. All right. What? But I can tell you the dairy farmers in the United States would disagree with me. Dairy farmers in Canada can produce, uh, you know, things, just produce dairy products at a far lower rate than they can in the U.S. And dairy farmers in the United States feel like they need the protection of NAFTA in order to compete. 
sugar farmers too. The, the reworked NAFTA that President Trump renegotiated, or has has that changed anything? I I don't know. I mean, uh, honestly, I'm not in these marginal areas where things would be either improved or vice versa. I suspect NAFTA probably need a needed a, a workaround, no matter where you, or excuse me, a, a rework, no matter what your you know what industry you're in. After 20 uh, years, it, there's got to be some things that have changed since the mid 90s, like internet, smartphones, private space companies, a few things. <laughs> Things have changed. Yes. And the growth of the Chinese economy has changed a lot of things, too. Yeah. And I think that we've seen the uh, at this point, we've seen the rise and the fall of the Chinese economy. It's, uh, you know, they're likely the um, the economy that managed to pull the whole world out of the 2008 to 2011 uh, recession time frame thing going on there. And without them, we would have been in a true sort of depression. But now, with their autocratic COVID policies, they seem to have made themselves far less meaningful in the world uh, stage. Well, you are correct in that their COVID policies hampered their economic recovery out of COVID and has hampered their economy in general now. But I would submit to you that the what started under President Trump, and I would also submit to you, is being uh, executed even more efficiently under the Biden administration, mm. is the real... Well, it looks like we're going to get a choice between those two coming, back, coming on here next year, so... Yeah. Back to the future. Uh, all right, so... Anyway, I submit to you that the reindustrialization of America and its Western allies and Pacific allies is well underway. In fact, this has been a goal for if we if we use the Trump election as a, a marker, we would say since 2017. So for six years, I, I would also, as we get deeper in the discussion, talk about some of the. Uh, the thought leaders, if you will, that were saying things prior to this, prior to that point. But from a, a government standpoint, as opposed to the George W. Bush administration, you really didn't hear that in his administration about pulling out of the WTO. And even in the Obama administration, you had the... Um, the agreement for and the Southeast Asian trade and the Asian trade agreement. Uh, and I apologize for the, the name of it is escaping me right now. Pacific rim something. Uh, no, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that, but it was, you know, president Trump said he was going to pull the U S out of it. Uh, he did. I don't think it really, I don't think it worked the way he thought it was going to work. Um, and I don't think it would have been the negative that we thought it was. Um, but I, I, I thought that was one of the, the good things that I was hearing out of President Trump at the time that I heard it. But, I, you know, do you want to be right or you want to be consistent? I think I was wrong about that. And uh, that would be inconsistent with my point of view now. So let's go back to, to China. If we've been successful 
in not only reindustrializing, but reorienting the supply chain. So China controls so much of the uh, what the world's economy needs, whether it's precious metals, where it's rare earth uh, minerals, uh, whether it's just the uh, manufacturing goods, etc. Uh, it's not like we can do without them. Well, I don't think the whole the world can. I don't think China is going anywhere. Um, China is far greater than it was, say, in my youth, as far as an economy goes. But I mean, the fears of China from three, five years ago seem to have evaporated. Uh, well, I would disagree with that. Okay. If you're talking about the general public, I might agree with that. The, but the public still has the fears? Is that what you're claiming? Or the, that they... Well, the, the Cold War, uh, the, the movement to a stronger Cold War against China, it, that drumbeat, I guess was the term I was looking for, has, is getting stronger. Sure. Uh, yep. But and, well, let's, let's find out what's going on in China. Now, the... Let's look at that. Before we go any, any further, I do want to say this, though. If China has such a, a dramatic demographic problem because of its one-child policy that yes. went on for decades too long, that they, that, like, there's almost nothing they can do to move into sort of normal Western standards for all of their citizens. The lives that we live in America just don't compare to the lives um, in China. You know, middle class and lower middle class and lower class in China, things are entirely different. Well, you know what other industrialized countries are in the same boat? Let me just... Um, I was just asking... Demographic problems? All yeah. of them. Yes. Japan, Korea, uh, Germany, all of the European countries, the UK... Uh, the U.S. is almost in that problem, but the U.S. has the ability to, if they wanted to do it, if we want to do it, if we can get over the demagoguery on it within, with immigration, we could overcome that. Well, that's where I, where I go on this. Is, but the, is other the United States enjoys a status in the world where we can turn around any demographic problem that we have in a matter of a couple of years, simply by allowing more people in. And like, I want to just be clear, uh, it's a, the United States should have let every high earner in the planet come here and work. And to not do so is ridiculous. However, you can't just have high earners. That there has to be somebody out there to populate the uh, you know, the, the, they have to, somebody has to pick the fruit. Somebody has to mow the grass. Somebody has to, uh, to drive up do window. these sorts of, yep, work the drive up window. And it's been different, uh, groups throughout the years, almost always young people, um, throughout the years. And we need to let those groups in. You can't be scared of these things going on. From what best I can tell, immigrants, and the ch less so the children of their Im of immigrants, but immigrants have not been 
a real problem as far as crime goes. Uh, this is one of the demagogueries that goes in. Uh, the Republican talk show hosts find some criminal, some uh, immigrant that's committed a crime. Uh, they make a big deal about it. They've done something terrible, and they have done something terrible. But when you let millions of people in, somebody's going to do something bad. Um, you know, I'd be happy to say I'm happy to trade all of the U.S. criminals for uh, you know hardworking people in third world countries. Well, there is one industrialized partner of the United States and its allies that has the labor force to challenge China, and that is India, Yeah, which uh, we are drawing closer with, closer to, uh, also geographically with the Indian Ocean and the uh, South China Sea. There, there's a whole lot of stuff going on there. Uh, we are going to find as out that uh, the Hindu nationalism that's in India is something that we're not going to be able to control, and so we have to hope for the best on that. But in courtesy, speaking of India, courtesy of WION in India, here's something that helps get us on the, the page of China, what's happening with their exports. Because remember, if we're reindustrializing and reorienting the supply chain, has it started to affect China yet? We'll let them tell us. China's exports in December fell at their fastest pace since 2020. This is because of a drop in global demand and after the zero COVID policy hit the economic activity in China. According to official data, exports fell 9.9% year-on-year to $30.6 billion. And this is the second consecutive month of decline. Exports are an important part of China's economy since 2020, when the global shutdown led to strong demand for Chinese goods, such as medical products. And then as the rest of the world reopened, the world's second largest economy is still reeling from the effects of years of its zero COVID policy, which hammered businesses and supply chains and dampened consumption. China began lifting most of the hardline measures after anti-policy protests across the country. The uncertainties linked to COVID and the economic slowdown in China are having an impact on the need for foreign products. Imports were down again in December, sinking 7.5%. Both import and exports dropped much more than forecast in a survey of economics by Bloomberg. China's trade in December nevertheless reached $78 billion, but it's still well below July's record, $101.2 billion. China is set to unveil its 2022 economic growth figure. The previous year, gross domestic product grew more than 8%. So if you listen to the early part of that, when they said that China's exports had um, fallen by, I think they said 9%, but the, yeah, to 10. 9.9%. Yeah. But in one month. Right. Is that what they said? Well, that was the July. Year over year, so July of right. this year compared to July of the previous year. So actually, that was it was higher when they were having the most problems with their opening of the country with COVID. Mm-hmm. They, they had higher higher exports. It's now now that they've opened up the country, exports have fallen. But there's even uh, more a more stark number to me on this, and this comes from uh, I believe Reuters is the source for this. China's exports to the U.S. July. So we're talking for the whole world, 10%. 
Exports to the U.S. plunged by 23.1%, and to the European Union, Union 20.6%. So however much exports are falling to the rest of the world, to the U.S. and Europe, they're falling, falling twice as fast. And those are the people that will pay the highest prices, um, that can pay the high, highest prices. My presumption would be yes. is, is that these are the richest economies, mm-hmm. that they're uh, seeing breathtaking drops, uh, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28% drops um, to these different mature economies, which presumably, since they're only seeing 10% drops in exports, means that they're exporting them to... Less Africa, South America. Yeah, and it's not Southeast Asia because I'm looking at that number too. To the Southeast nation, East Na- Asia nations, which would be Vietnam in particular, who is a benefiting of re- of industrialization with factories moving out of China into yeah. Vietnam. But Southeast Asia, and you know, that would be Thailand, uh, Myanmar. All of- China's neighbors who aren't as happy as they could and, be. And in are China. tightly entwined with us. The Philippines even are considered in this, I believe, although they're, they're not all that south. They're on the Pacific Rim. Uh, yes. 21.4% falling there. Uh, so we have a, <laughs> we have quite the uh, change in the dynamic there. But what about oil? I mean, we still have, that's a big part of the Chinese economy. Well, China imports from Russia, which primarily are going to be oil and uh, commodities, you know, from the eastern part of Russia, uh, things besides oil, different minerals and metals, things like that. They fell 8.1%. So there's a slowdown in the Chinese economy. Russia, we can go all the whole dynamic Ukraine and things like that. But Russia is suffering from this. So if you're an ally of China, you're getting some of the blowback too. Um, anyway, Chinese imports of crude oil dropped 20% in July. That, imports. That force tells a lot of deindustrialization right there. It does. I, I'm, I'm shocked by these numbers. I, I can't believe what I'm hearing it's, One more, I, I'm not to overwhelm with numbers, but we're, we're going to talk about Biden's um, executive order in a second. Integrated circuits, you know, semiconductors in an integrated circuit fell by 17%. That is a key uh, commodity that's needed in industrial production now. So hold on, these integrated circuits are being imported into China, is that right? They're, the imports into China fell by 17%. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, it's long been Taiwan, China's, uh, you know, sworn enemy, uh, if, if they'll say the name at all, um, <laughs> is where so many of the, uh, chips are being made. Um, so I wonder where, you know, where are those chips being sent if they're not being sent to China? Would be my question. Well, we have growth in the U.S., but we also have the, and, and in the European countries are starting to recover now more. They're not that they were much of a recession, just a little slowdown. But the uh, I'm, I'm I'm looking to see what they are exporting these days in China, uh, and it's not what you 
other than the first item, it's not really what you want to put on your wish list for your growing economy. They're okay. exporting cars. That's going up. You know, they got a lot of electric cars over there. Refined oil and bags is a big increase in the Chinese export. Refined market. oil in bags. I think that's really two things. Okay. Refined oil and bags. Oh, oh wait. And the bags. I sh- you know, people need to learn to proofread in math <laughs> these days. It's well, it's, they're all written by bots uh, and AI. Right. It's cars, comma, refined oil and bags, comma, suitcases and similar receptacles. And I would suggest that it was supposed to be cars, comma, refined oil, comma, yeah. bags, suitcases and similar receptacles. Okay. So I'm willing to accept your edit. These are a growth industry in China. Well, I, they're 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 shipping them out um, because people are traveling more. I I wouldn't doubt for a second that suitcases, the suitcase industry, is seeing a huge boom. We we've got a lot of stuff. We've covered a lot of ground here, and there really is a strategy to all this. And I want to go back five years to Steve Bannon was one of the key advisors to President Trump. In a yeah. lot of ways, he is... Until he got on the outs for some reason. Well, there was that book that came out. There's been a lot of books that came out about the Trump administration. But one came out in 2018. President Trump gave interviews for it. Uh, Bannon gave interviews for it. And as bright and as articulate excuse me, as Steve Bannon is, he really likes to hear his own voice. Mm, yeah. He likes to be the smartest man in the room. Or woman. I know the feeling. Yes. Well, don't we all? <laughs> it's he was uh, had an interview in 2018. This is after he uh, gracefully left the White House after his comments in that book were made public, uh-huh. and, he, and he didn't really disrespect President Trump, but he might have disrespected some of his coworkers in the White House and created a little, I see. you know, a little awkwardness in the work environment, and. But anyway, Michelle Russo Cabrera, who was a longtime CNBC reporter and really has her uh, handle on the the uh, foreign affairs, that, that uh, economic power kind of point of view, she asked him what would success and what they were then quaintly calling the trade war with China. So this is 2018, but it really is, foreshadows a lot of stuff here. Steve Bannon, Michelle Caruso, Cabrera, courtesy of CNBC. And let me, let's get to about a minute here. How it ends is in victory. Donald Trump is not going to back off this. The Chinese are going to blink right now. What, what is victory? Victory is when they give us full access to their, their markets. Victory is when they stop. Remember, the warlordism in, the, in, in China right now, and she is under, I think, tremendous pressure, is the state-owned industries. Remember, China, made in China 2025, they told us it was to leapfrog us and to converge on advanced chip design, robotics, and artificial intelligence to converge eventually with genetics to converge on advanced manufacturing. What the reality is we saw in GTE is to get off the West supply chain for... ZTE. ZTE. Getting off ZTE was to get off the West supply chain for components. I think the number one thing you're going to see out of the trade war is the uh, reorientation of the complete supply chain of Japan, 
Western Europe, in the United States, and Southeast Asia, that 800 million people, even before you get to India, okay, around the freedom-loving countries. I think the regime in China is in deep trouble. Remember, the, this is different than the Chinese people. The Chinese people are some of the hardest working and best people in the world. It's this regime. Okay, so he had to throw the thing in there about how great the Chinese people are. Uh, I think a little PR work there at the end. But that term, if you weren't aware of it, China 2025, that's when they had targeted to be equal with the United States and its allies in artificial intelligence technology, in chip-making technology, uh, in blockchain, for that matter, uh, probably uh, biopharmaceuticals uh, and genetic engineering technology, uh, quantum computing, all of those things. Now, that term, 20, China 2025, that was over 10 years in advance that they came up with that initiative. So mm-hmm. in 2010 to 2015, China was getting ready to target that 10-year mark out of 2025. Well, we had COVID in the middle there. That had a little effect on that timeline. And now we've got the quaint trade war that it was called in the early Trump uh, administration. And now we have an economic cold war or, or rivalry, if you will, if you want to be more polite about it, under the Biden administration. So I think at the very least we can say, and we'll have to continue this on the other side, at the very least we can say that the 2025 deadline that the Chinese Communist Party put on themselves is getting a little bit harder to make now. Mark, we'll come back with your thoughts on that. Listen to these important messages. You're listening to Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. It's Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network, and I'm Henry Reigns. And I'm Mark Edge. And we're here in the third hour of Reigns and Edge. We have covered a lot of ground. In fact, we've been around the world. And just to do a quick summary of where we have been, especially in the last hour. We talked about the reindustrialization of America. We talked about the reorganization and the reorientation of the global supply chain of the industrial world. We talked about the effects on China and the, might I say, shocking drop in their exports to the United States, to Europe, to Southeast Asia, basically the industrial world that's allied with the United States. And... We talked about the economy of the U.S. and its allies, but especially the U.S., growing uh, the manufacturing construction that's going on in the United States, the infrastructure that's going on in the United States, and the failure of China to live up to their China 2025 goals in high-tech industry and the, the most competitive areas of the economy in the coming century. So 
Mark, before we take it any farther, what do you have to say about what we covered looking back? Well, um, I've never been a big fan of China. In fact, um, I really kind of have a problem with a democracy, um, a republic, a, uh, a country of free men uh, doing business with uh, you know an authoritarian state like this. I, I don't like the status that China's been given under Nixon and uh, Clinton. Uh, I, I don't like the getting into bed with people who by the sounds of it, are stealing their citizens' organs and selling them on some kind of global black market. Um, I, I, just, I don't like it. I think that's an entrepreneurial endeavor by some Chinese. <laughs> um, their government doesn't seem to have a problem with it, and it appears to be being uh, perpetrated on people who are in their prisons. So once you take responsibility for somebody by incarcerating them, you... I think the most basic of responsibilities is not to sell their organs. Well, point taken. <laughs> so, uh, you know what I mean? I, I I don't like what I see as far as basketball stars and uh, performers and these sorts of things being bent to the will of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, it used to be CCCP that we didn't like. Now it's the CCP that we don't like. Um, and I'm aware that I'm only uh, manipulated by the news that's uh, sent out. But I hate seeing this bastion of freedom that was Hong Kong, previously Macau, um, and you know maybe in the future Singapore, being manipulated by these authoritarians. Um, you know, I just, I'm not a fan. Uh, I feel really bad for the people of Taiwan kind of stuck where they are. If I was God King of America, God I'd King, carve about a piece of, uh, whoa, 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 whoa. God King. Yeah. God. Um, King. Are you, does that give you the God King of America? Yes. Too? <laughs> just a guy who can make decrees without being uh, questioned. Okay. All right. We'll give you that. Um, I would carve out some of the, uh, you know, the large swaths of Western land that the uh, United States government has and just say, hey, you know, you want a Taiwan, build it right here. We're going to make you a 51st state or just allow the people of Taiwan to immigrate here without any questions, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, give them, you know, some kind of favored immigration status, whatever it might be. But I mean, these are these are people that are currently producing the world's semiconductors. I think we need to give you the supernatural powers too, if that's what you want to do. I'd like that. Very, so you can levitate the Taiwan semiconductor factories right over the Pacific, and it's convert. It's all not into- cheap to move a semiconductor factory. It's also not cheap to have it blown to smithereens. Yes, and that is one of the options on the table. So. You know, I mean, think think about World War II when everybody said Joseph Stalin was insane for move, moving the uh, factories to the east of uh, Stalingrad. Somebody's going to correct me because I know I've gotten something wrong there. Uh, but, you know, now he's looked back in history and saying this was a bold move and it was the right thing to do. There's a lot more to Taiwan than the people there and the factories there. 
you've got the Moluccan Straits there that come around the south, uh, southeastern part of Asia. From Taiwan, you can island hop like the United States did in World War II. And you can threaten Vietnam, South Korea, Philippines, and eventually Japan. And the, you eliminate um, logistical routes to support those countries and keep them in the, the United States um, sphere. Well, let's not even call it a sphere of influence. Let's call it a, a cooperative uh, allies there that, that are, are integrated with our economy. And you can effectively disengage the United States from the Pacific Rim, where we've been there ever since, um, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, you know, brought the dream of manifest destiny was not <laughs> California. Manifest destiny was to circle the United, the circle the globe uh, for the United States influence. Um, I told you that in one of the recent shows that I'm a reluctant imperialist now. You, know, you brought up President Nixon, and President Nixon's opening to China was trilateral diplomacy. May, in a lot of uh, world power and power strategy is is a three way thing. It's all. It's even in if you can remember a time in the United States when there were the big three automakers, and they really Japan and some of the other uh, automakers around the world post-World War II were not a factor in American uh, car manufacturing and car sales. You had a trilateral, you had three. So if one company gets too dominant, the other two will combine competitively, like whether, we hate to call it collusion. I think President <laughs> Trump would, would agree with me, don't like the word collusion. But there would be coincidental pricing that put the third party at a disadvantage. And so at the time prior to the opening of China, let's say the 50s, when Russia and China became allied, the U.S. were looking at two adversaries and, uh, and uh, a, you know, a superior combination than Two is a superior combination than one. So by breaking China off and, and um, capitalizing on a natural enmity that the Russia and China had and separating them, we worked the trilateral, um, diplom not diplomacy, trilateral strategy against Russia or the Soviet right. Union at the time. Mm -hmm. so that, and you find that three-way rivalry tends to be where things consolidate throughout history. So that was a very strategic move for Richard Nixon through Clinton, who you brought up too. That's where we deindustrialized the United States, not we as the government, but just transnational mm -hmm. corporations because the labor costs were so cheap in China. Eventually, once we got out of the United States, broke the unions here. Thank you, Ronald Reagan, for that. Uh, it, was, it was well on its way, but he put the nail in the coffin for unions for a couple decades. Um, eventually, 
China's population had too high an income, and then transnationals started looking to Southeast Asia, started looking to Africa, South America, etc. We don't have to play that all the way out. In if you look at Clinton versus George H.W. Bush and the fall of the Soviet Union, we had the, the trilateral flip the other way. The former Soviet Union and the Soviet Union bloc now found us as the, the asset. And we were getting integrated with Russia, and now China was isolated. So that constantly happens. George H.W. Bush and under James Baker... If you remember, they they were imperialists, but they were very cautious imperialists. Remember when uh, the first desert, Iraq war, Desert Storm, George H.W. Bush didn't want to occupy Iraq. He was content just to contain Saddam Hussein there. In right. The they they basically, he, they drove him out of Kuwait and just kind of, you know, stopped somewhere yeah. on the road to Baghdad. You know, we got, we've got a balance of power there that, He's never going to rise to challenge us. And then, excuse me, when the Soviet Union fell, it was James Baker. Now, I can't know whether George H.W. Bush and James Baker felt this way as a long-term strategy, but they had told Boris Yeltsin, we will not expand NATO into the old Warsaw Bloc countries. You will still have this buffer of states between NATO and you. We aren't trying to dismember the Russia, the, the, the big part of the Soviet Union, Russia. We just want to be uh, partners with you in the economic welfare of the country. And you do not have to worry about a threat from us. Well, Bill Clinton came in. And the military-industrial state under Bill Clinton, what do they want to do? They want to expand NATO. They want to. They they basically looted the Russian resources with sweetheart deals for the companies coming in. And eventually, you had the backlash by the the organized crime in uh, Russia and the the former Soviet, uh, former Communist Party that sort of reorganized itself as a capitalist party. And then we get to the point where we are now. <laughs> but what else did we do in that period of time? It, as, after Bill Clinton? I, I recall going after the Muslims. Well, that was uh, George W. Bush, not George H.W. Bush. With Clinton ends, we got George okay. Bush. You know, the United States wanted hegemony. I mean, maybe you and I didn't. But the, the financial power, the wealth of the United States, those interests wanted hegemony in the world. But there were one faction of that wanted even more. And that's where we get the project for the new American century. And Zbigniew Brzezinski, Carter's national security advisor, wrote a book in the 90s about the grand chessboard. And he said, we needed to have bases in Central Asia, like Kazakhstan, like Uzbekistan, like Afghanistan, if we were going to contain China and control the world. Well, let's step back a minute. We already were controlling the world. Right. Our infrastructure for the Internet controlled the Internet for the world. Our our economics, the World Banking. Trade Organization, yeah. the World Bank, we controlled the finance, and we had hegemony. 
English is the international language. Dollar is the international currency. Right. We, we had it all as a country. And, as a, and as an they, what they wanted more is, is so that they could then abuse it, though, Henry. Like, the, there's no doubt that the dollar is the world's reserve currency. But the only reason it's threatened is because it hasn't been managed that well. And our, in recent decades, our use of it as a weapon against everybody through sanctions and all that makes people realize, makes nations realize, we need to hedge our bets on this. We need an escape because if they ever bring the hammer down on us, we see what happens to these other countries. We see what North Korea struggles with. We see what Venezuela struggles with. But point is, George Bush came in with the whole signers on of the project for the newest American century, it wasn't enough to have the control. They wanted absolute control. And they wanted bases in Central Asia. And where did it lead us? 20 years of endless war, 20 years and trillions of dollars and lost American lives. Preceded by 20 years of uh, endless war. Pardon me? Preceded by years, decades of endless war, well, uh, followed by decades. War, war is peace, Mark. Um, <laughs> right. I'll try to explain that. I just happened to have a page pulled up on 1984 right now. Yeah. You were talking about the three, uh, you know, this this sort of uh, trilateral is, uh, they, they mentioned Oceania, yeah. Eurasia, and East Asia yeah. in 1984, and I was going to use that as an example. Yeah, he was very foresightful. Anyway, yeah. we, we, we were beating this up, but I, I wanted the people to know. So, we had a chance to be like Bismarck in the 1800s in Germany, where Germany had the power to expand and go into the same thing that had happened in Europe in previous centuries, grabbing land. And he, But he was ready to be the dominant country in a balance of power. And rather than us, in our position with the fall of the Soviet Union, where we had control of all the global institutions, Right. To let there be a balance of power with lesser powers, with our hegemony, this faction behind George Bush and not the faction behind his dad or the faction behind uh, the other foreign policy establishment wanted it all. They wanted the land. They wanted control of the physical land of the Eurasian mass. And here's where we are trying to make yeah. play makeup. If you don't let your uh, competition have at least a seat at the table, it's, uh, yeah, it's not going to go well. You know, after 9-11, when we were going to go into Afghanistan, and really, there was... You keep saying we. I've never been to Afghanistan. Okay. I'm saying the the we of us as a country. When the United States... (laughs) I know. I I will refine my language in the future. (laughs) The United States went in for retaliation about... Uh, the 9-11 attack. Russia was happy for that. They thought it was, they had Chechnya. They thought this was a chance to subjugate their Muslim problem. Mm. What they didn't realize is the same project for American Century had also talked about the Israel's, I mean, not Israel, but Iraq, Syria, in uh, that area, of the world as needing our control. And that was the overall plan. And in the project for a new American century, it says barring a new Pearl Harbor, it will be hard to get the American people behind these expansion of bases overseas. 
they had their new Pearl Harbor. They came in, they're in Afghanistan, but most of the countries in the world understood that after 9-11, whatever you think of the actual source of the attack, there had to be retaliation from just the, 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 the way power works, the way violence works. And for a moment in time, when Russia thought that they had a partner in subjugating the, their Muslim problem, I saw on Pravda, the old Russian uh, news source, the website, Magazine, yeah. Yeah. across their banner, there was the face shot of George Bush and Vladimir Putin on each corner and the blurring of the American flag into the Russian flag. It was stunning to me. Anyway, that's what happened. That was a moment lost. And here we are now. Uh, I think whenever you finish your well, power is always going to overreach, right? Like that's what it does. No, not necessarily. And it's when doesn't it? Uh, that's the difficult Chinese empires and dynasties that lasted a lot longer than we've existed. Uh, we've they were usually kept in place the by Roman like the Empire, the Roman Empire tried to co-opt the leadership of as many lands that it conquered as it could. Yeah, I, I would agree that hegemony makes a heck of a lot more sense than empire. Um, but, you know, I mean, like the, there's always going to be somebody who's, well, this, this hegemony thing isn't as, it just isn't good enough. It's got to be a little more. We got to put our boot on the neck a little harder. And, you know, they, they didn't get their money or enough money or whatever in the first go around. So they got to squeeze it again. And that's where it really all falls apart. And I think Americans uh, sadly got this narrative out of World War II that, you know, countries are just going to fall in line like China or excuse me, like uh, Japan and, and Germany did. Why can't we just have that? How come they don't just fall in line? Well, well, because it rarely works that way. Let's end this how we started with some words from Steve Bannon. Let's see just how foresightful he was five years ago. And we'll come back after he has his words. Brexit and 2016 are inextricably linked. What links them is China. It's China's exporting its deflation and Chinese exporting, exporting its excess capacity that has gutted the Midland heartlands of England, obviously through Germany, but in, in gutted the upper Midwest the United States. If you go out to the Midwest and you, have, you give them a fire-breathing speech on China, you don't have to get them up to speed like you do the elites in New York. They understand it. J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Allergies, reminded me that these studies from uh, MIT and Harvard show there's a direct correlation between the factories that went overseas, the billets and jobs that went with them, and the opioid crisis. Remember, tariffs are not just about economics, and they're just not about uh, ma- manufacturing jobs. It is about self-worth and identity and people understanding they have jobs. Okay, this is bringing these manufacturing so jobs back. good for the economy? 100% good for the economy. Great for the economy. Well... There's the irony there from five years ago when he talks about the opioid crisis, which we all know about that. I guess China might point out the opium wars that happened in our occupation of the European powers of China. Well, uh, that, it, it, the European powers like that. OK, if I'm not responsible for the United States government, I'm certainly not responsible for what the English government did. Um, I realize well, I've got an English U.S. Last name. U.S. had plenty of interest in the opium wars, too. 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, uh, his ancestors or grandfather uh, gained much of their wealth from the opium trade. Um, I'll take your word for it. I um, I don't know about the U.S.'s involvement in the opium yes. wars. Yeah, it was it was strong. We'll 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 get it around to all this stuff. Um, but a lot of things uh, there, there. I'm sure in the weeks to come, we can explore some of them and get back to some more around the neighborhood corner issues too. And we'll try all that and just wrap it up in the next segment after these messages that you really want to hear here on Reigns and Edge at the Free Talk Live Network. To Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. I'm Henry Reigns, and Mark Edge isn't here. All I can tell you, he's under deep cover right now on a very important mission. It has to do with global energy policy, resiliency, and, well, keeping the lights on. But, speaking of keeping the lights on, got a person that goes way back in the past with shined a lot of light in my life and other people's life. It's attorney C.J. Zayah. C.J., thanks for being here. Oh, it's always an honor, Henry. Always great to be with you. Yes. Well, I think we go back about 20 years. Uh, when I first met you, you were getting run ready to run for a Florida State Senate seat. Uh, and then just a couple years later, you were running for Congress. And we did radio together. Yeah, it's been a long time, man. I, I, I just found out how old your kids were, and I forgot. I mean, I remember seeing them. They were little tiny little things and now they're young women yes it's they crazy. are yeah and uh, you're not a granddad yeah I, I and my younger daughter is married to a, a british young man and they're over in the uk now i wasn't planning on talking about this with you but it, it really is a, a culture shock here so she's uh trained in wellness mm-hmm. and she just recently the closest thing I could compare it to is Guardian Ad Litem, but it's not that. Right. It is a arm's uh, length distance from the the federal government, but it's really a gov- quasi-governmental organization that looks out for the welfare of children in the justice system there. And it's they have about 2,000 employees, and she just recently took this job uh, where she's in charge of the wellness for those employees and developing different programs for that. Awesome. Right. And so in, in the UK, of course, they they have health care that everyone receives. National health So it's not like where, say, you are working in the corporate America where, you know, the job is to reduce costs for health care. The main thing in the UK is they're looking to reduce absenteeism, uh, to keep the people healthy and well so that they can do their job. Amazing concept, especially yes. if you've experienced it over here. Right. So, you know, she would handle, you know, children that are not directly the children, but the people that are working with the children right. and some of the stress and how to, to manage that, but more, more or less routine things. But the, about two weeks ago, they had a number of what they call critical incidents. Right. In there. Now, no fault of any employee or any particular person, 
but it created a lot of stress in the offices because I think there was uh, 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 suicide. There, there was some, uh, there was a, a violent incident, and so they go, "Well, we have a lot of people with problems now that you need to help." And she goes, "Okay, well, what are the protocols in place for when we have a critical incident?" Now you have to think in the terms of the U.S. Now, right. what, what's a critical incident? We have active shooter. We we've <laughs> got uh, criminal gangs. Oh, don't we got uh, yeah all the things oh. that you might think in the juvenile justice system. What's critical in it? Well, back that up. So she says, "Well, what are the protocols now in place?" And they're like, "We don't have any protocols. Mm-hmm. This is an organization that's been around for decades, but." They're not used to having those kind of incidents. Anything that's serious. And they don't have a, a cookie cutter or a template that they just go to. Or they become more American as time goes by. Well, they have to yeah. Start there, huh? Luckily, they had an American there that... Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> no active shooter, no, no, no gang violence, no um, major catastrophe... Uh, let's let's get organized on this, and so she had to develop that. But uh, j- just think of the culture shock. You don't even think about guns in the uh, that are going to come into a child's life or, or things like that. Is no, that, is that it's like a U.S. used to be uh, a while uh, ago. Well, uh, maybe. <laughs> okay. I just I just always I never thought growing up that I was worried about somebody's going to come in and shoot me. You know, it yeah. just never crossed my mind. Maybe you'd get harassed by a bully. Well, that's because we were taking our guns down the, the street there to go shoot rabbits. It must have been. <laughs> I don't know. But, all right. So CJ is a uh, very successful attorney. But as I said, he has a political interest. And so just to, before we go into one of the topics I wanted to talk to you about, uh, how do politics uh, affect you or engage you now in, in your current career? Man, you know, I love our country, and uh, I just think it's so important that we participate in the political process. You know, we don't have to agree uh, with everything, but we have to respect other people's opinions. I always say, I don't like the word uh, compromise your views. I say collaborate with others to get things done. You know, government is about great infrastructure, giving us opportunities for us to to, to create our own businesses, to create our own destiny, and so forth and so on. We have a unique country. I spent a lot of time overseas, and I am always amazed how great our country can be and is overall, but how we're slipping, in my opinion, in a direction I don't want to really go. And, and we have to stop this slide to the extreme uh, right, you know, uh, in the sense of, of fascism, um, democracy, etc. So, great country. We need to get involved. We need to keep um, our, our democracy strong. We need to believe in our system, and we always need to work to make it better. Well, here at Reigns and Edge, we've just been on the air as a show for I don't know, five or six weeks. Mark Edge, of course, is a founder of Free Talk Live, and, right. and Reigns and Edge is carried Friday nights on the Free Talk Live network. So the, the show has a 20-year history thereabouts of expressing libertarian interests and topics and things like that. Uh, what's your familiarity with uh, libertarianism? Well, I'm a, I'm a, I, you know, for 40 years I raced motorcycles, uh, road racing. And uh, the guys involved in that. We, How many years? 40. Yeah, I'm old, right? So, so if you think about it, I mean, 
very fiercely independent people. We come different political backgrounds, parties, etc. But we all have something in common. We, you know, we're very independent. We believe in ourselves. So I have my own business as a lawyer. If I was not an attorney, I wouldn't have my own. If I didn't was an attorney, I'd be doing my own. Pra- I've always had businesses. I always believe in a, a strong entrepreneurship base. I don't trust government. I don't. I'm a defense attorney for years as well, as well as doing personal injury. But as a defense attorney, what I, I don't trust government. We have a remarkable system in our country, in our criminal justice system, where the government has to prove each and every element beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt. We didn't trust the political process when we created this system. We didn't trust judges, so we created a jury system. Our foundation, if you will, in my opinion, is about. It's more libertarian than not, in a way. I'm, I'm progressive on issues. But I'm also, uh, you know, very, uh, I guess I'm more centrist because I want to include everybody in this great experiment, but I don't trust government. I, I believe that it's about checks and balances. It's about um, having two parties, at least, that can balance each other. One completely in charge is a ruinous thing that's happened in Florida. And, and not because they're conservatives that are in charge. I mean, if the Dems are in charge, you're going to have the same problem. I right. believe in checks and balances and distrust the power. This is, you know, power corrupts, you know, so we need to have a system that understands that we can't all get our way. And I'm a very big stronger in, in the independent individual who, who creates their own destiny. I believe that you create are the master of your destiny. You know, I don't believe in some higher powers controlling everything I do. You know, the, the word in Spanish for prayer is oración, orar con acción, prayer with action. So if you just pray for something, if you're one of these people, I think you're a fool. If you're a person of faith, ask God for the strength for you to change your world, you to make a difference in your life, you to make more money, you to, that's where I come from. And I think it's very libertarian-esque and very progressive in the sense of, hey, I don't care what you do, but don't come in my world and tell me what to do. You know, so if, if that's libertarian, that's what I am, because I believe that government should stay the hell out of my body and my life, and, and, and I want you to stay out of mine, but I also will stay out of yours. Well, if you just got back from a late night stack and you're at the refrigerator when we started this segment, Mark Edge is not with us right now, but old friend CJ Zaya is with me right now. And I, I hate to speak for libertarians because Mark usually does that. <laughs> yeah, they, sure. But as, as a personal injury attorney, right. I'm sure they may have some opinions about you, uh, generally. Well, they, but, should, they but, should know that we're good. Uh, of, of, uh, as I understand it, uh, one of the ways that libertarians uh, feel there could be less regulation is if the court system was a better resource for individuals that have been damaged to, to seek justice that way as opposed to having a uh, central government dictate mandates on how to behave. Well, that, that could work, but you have to then allow it, the system to work. And, you know, this last Governor DeSantis in March of 24 uh, changed a lot of things. I mean, I, I don't think people are aware that if there's another hurricane, you're not going to be able to, if, if the insurance company owes you 100000 and they're only paying you fifty, before you could, for 120 years, hire an attorney, get them to pay the hundred, and on top of that, pay the attorney fees and costs. Now that's gone. You're going to have to eat it from the money you get to fix your, your home. If they would allow the system to work, uh, I would say yes. But government, if there's anybody that's getting involved, is DeSantis is the biggest, you know, these are the guys that are, are taking our rights away and, and uh, repressing and suppressing responsibility. Personal injury attorneys are about getting responsibility from the people that have harmed you. That's it. 
if you if you're if you're if you somebody's caused you harm, they ought to pay you for it. That's instead we all get guns and shoot each other. That's the other system we could implement. Well, a few weeks ago, Mark Edge and I were talking about some of the different news stories that, mm-hmm. that were the hot topics of the week. And one thing that we talked about that has now uh, has a follow-up that we'd like to make the audience aware of, uh, we talked about the uh, the ballot measure in Ohio right. that would have made it tougher to protect abortion rights. Uh, and that was where they wanted a a amendment to the the state constitution would have to pass with a supermajority of 60%. Now, some people may say, well, something that big it needs to be a supermajority. But there was another part to it that was uh very very onerous. The not only did you have to have the supermajority, but to get it on the ballot you had to have the signatures from 5% of the eligible voters in every county of right. the, the state. Okay. So, in other words, you could go to the county that had 200,000 people and get 5% of them. You could go to the county that had a million people, get 5% of them. So, so a, you a, could go a conservative to, county could block the yes, whole thing. Yes, like 1,000 people right. uh, could block it. 1,000 eligible voters could block it for right. the rest of the state. So majority doesn't control. A minority can control it. Right. Well, it's a way of preempting the any ballot. Because what they were seeing, the, the, the Republicans in the uh, legislature in Ohio were seeing that these uh, different, whether it was the, the ballot initiative in Kansas right. or one of the other states, very conservative states, but a, a reproductive rights was a motivating factor for so many so many women and so many uh, voters of, of every gender, every gender. I mean, we got to say every gender right. now. But it's, it's not a it's not a binary choice anymore. Anyway, the, the Republicans hope to win back control of the Senate and keep their House majority, but acknowledge abortion politics will complicate their chances of winning. Uh, this has been a potent issue, as we saw ever since the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. Which was ridiculous, if you like freedom. I mean, you know what really blows my mind, Henry? All these people waving the U.S. flag, they're saying they're about small government and all this. But then they, they're, they these uh, anti-abortion people have just given the government the biggest win to come into your life and, and take control of it. You know, there was a case called Griswold before Roe v. Wade. Right. That, you know, contraceptives was illegal in our country, you know, through state lines, etc. Griswold said, no, 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 no. It's a right of privacy. Right of privacy is not clearly enumerated in our federal constitution. It is in Florida, for example, but not in the federal. So the constitution, well, if it's not written in the, con- well, it's supposed to change with time and the, and the court interprets what, what is there or not. But we don't have the right of privacy specifically written in our federal constitution. When they came up with Roe v. Wade, it's a putting a blender theory of different rights together to come up with privacy. Now, by reversing this, what this means is now government has the absolute right to come into your life, into your body, and do whatever the hell they want. If you're a person who believes in freedom, then you can, if you've been backing these right-wing fascists, then you have just allowed 
government to control your life. I mean, I, I just don't understand it. Well, and if I remember correctly, Griswold versus Connecticut, it wasn't just the the physical contraception, the, the, the prescribing of it. The doctor was not even allowed to discuss contraception. So it, there wasn't even the freedom of speech right, to talk right, about right. it with the government the can control and has a right to control your life now in multiple states across this country because of these whack jobs who wave the America, the U.S. flag, it's not American flag, it's the United States of America, the flag, the, our flag, and claim they're about freedom and claim about small government. My ass. They are not. They're either ignorant, they're stupid, or they're just hypocrites. Or you figure out what they are, but I, I don't get it. I, I hope they're just ignorant. Wake up, people. Well, the update that we'd like to tell you about is that the uh, ballot measure was voted on, and 57% to 43%, with more than 3 million Ohio voters voting, uh, including 700,000 that voted early, they voted not to amend the Constitution to require the supermajority or the onerous uh, regulation on how to get a ballot initiative up to the voters. Now, it said independent college-educated women, even those that lean to the right, are breaking in a way that they never have on the abortion issue. Before the row reversal, uh, independent right-leaning women were almost a lock for Republicans, but it's not so clear now. And that was a Republican strategist that was uh, speaking to the news service. But uh, we also have the fact that in the suburbs, the, the centrist and center-right women are breaking in a different way. These are bigger numbers than have normally broke when, you know, periodically things push a voter to, to change their normal pattern right. of voting. But in, in any kind of recent memory, and not like recent, I mean decades, uh, they haven't seen changes of this magnitude in these numbers across the country like they are now. And now there's going to be a name that you're going to remember, I believe. Okay. Celinda Lake. Do you remember her? Sure. Celinda Lake, and just background, is a 20 years ago, uh, when we were involved in your congressional campaign, you of course were much more involved in your congressional campaign <laughs> yeah. than I was, but uh, I, I had interviewed Celinda Lake and a couple other pollsters and found her really on top uh, of the polling and public opinion and able to get to the crux of the matters on different issues. Well, it turns out that she still is around and she's still polling uh, people. She says, abortion, this is a quote, abortion persists as a major mobilizing and motivating issue and persuasion issue. We saw a record high turnout in Ohio. It was a little over 3 million, as we just told you. We saw the mobilization of voters that hadn't even voted in 2022. In the early vote alone, there were 30,000 voters who voted in the election that hadn't voted in 2022. And they were largely women and African-American women. Lake said there was a 19-point shift compared to the 2020 election when Trump defeated Joe Biden 53 to 45%, and the shift was really across the board. It provided a roadmap for victory in Ohio in 2024. It provides a roadmap for victory, I think, nationwide. And uh, evidently, tremendous gains in the suburb. There have been questions about whether abortion is still a salient and issue, and that was resoundingly answered in the election. So nothing like taking our rights thing? away. Nothing like taking our rights away and giving it to big government. Beautiful. Thank you, the Republicans. Thank you very much, my fascist friends. I am so freaking scared about what's going on in our country. Except for that, the 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 silver lining is that 
I, if you slap the sleeping giant, they're going to wake up. And the sleeping giant are the people of this country that believe in freedom and to keep government and the church and everybody else out of their personal life. That's what I believe in. And that's what I think the majority of people would. Well, in just a few minutes before we have to say goodbye to the audience, uh, let's do a little handicapping on the upcoming presidential election. Uh, of course, you weren't around when, for the earlier parts of the show. Right. We looked at some of the statistics in the economy. Although inflation weighs on the household budget and can, is very immediate to voters, uh, as we look at uh, reindustrialization of the United States and in Europe, for that matter, too, uh, the projection for manufacturing, construction, for infrastructure in the coming year uh, is looks to be a, a real driver of growth in the economy. So the question is whether inflation will come down enough because you know when you're when you're putting gas in your car and it's 20 cents more than it was last week per gallon or you're at the grocery store and now you have to buy uh, a lesser quality product than what you'd like to feed your family it seems very immediate do you think that uh inflation is going to be the dominant issue a year from now when people are getting ready to vote or do you have any uh Feeling Norm of whether it's going to... Normally, to it's the economy, stupid. Is that what they said yes. back in the day? Normally, I would say that's it, because we care about our money in our pockets more than anything else. And that's how Hitler got elected, too, by the way, because they promised a better Germany. In my opinion, it was more economic-driven than, than, oh, what the hell do we care about the Jews? You know, it's an, always an attack on the other. The fascist. Now, you, those are words you're. I should be clear. Those were words that you're uh, repeating for somebody. Right, 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 right. I don't. But so, so they always have to attack the other in order, and it's usually you know the economy. So we'll look the other way because my life is better. But what's going to happen? Hopefully, it's not just about the economy. It's about the realization of the lunatics that are running on the right. Now, I, I like conservatives. I got no problem with conservatives. I'm very conservative in a lot of issues, believe it or not. But for God's sake, we're talking about the, the, our democracy and an, another nutbag who continues to argue that, for example, that the, the, the election was lost. If you love democracy, if you love your country, as Al Gore did in 2000, he says, okay, uh, I lost this one. I have issues with it, but let's do this for the sake of our nation, and then come back and run again if you if you feel that strong. But you you as a leader must take your country forward to bring everybody on this great world of ours, our great country of ours, and bring us together. If you are voting for fools that are trying to destroy our nation, I would hope the people can put for the moment down their economic issues and focus on what's really important here, the survival of our nation. You know, we only have about a minute and a half left here, CJ, and we've been speaking with attorney CJ Zaya, former congressional candidate, uh, multi-decade successful attorney, uh, political activist too. Uh, just in the last 48 hours or so, uh, Joe Manchin, the senator from <laughs> West Virginia, has said he's not sure that he will run for re-election, and he's not sure if he will run for re-election as a Democrat or as an independent. And he is not sure he won't run for president on the no party's third party label. How was that handicap the election? You got 30 seconds. That'd make it very interesting. I'm a big fan of Yang 
and even, uh, you know, a Jolly, a former representative Jolly in the St. Pete area. I do believe that there's a place for centrist candidates that, that, that need, we need a place for, like, the forward party. And we need that. Uh, this no names is a different gig because what it does, it, it, it just, uh, it's, it's set up to get a right wing person elected, in my opinion. The, the forward party is saying, no, we're not going in the presidentials. We're going to go on the, the little, you know, the little guys, start at the lower level and work up. I think it's very dangerous. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll see how it moves. Well, you get the last word for tonight. Next week, Mark Edge will be back from his mission and we will be with Mark for the full uh, three hours. Thank you, CJ, for coming. On on. And we'll be back next Friday with Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash, digital cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and has implemented really cool features to ensure it is undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their chain locks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete. So it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash Dash.org. This is Mark Edge with Free Talk Live. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com is one of the best real estate agents I've ever worked with. I've been through about two dozen real estate transactions in my life, and I feel like I know what I'm doing, but there's always the things that you don't know that you don't know. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com found a problem with the house that I was buying that ultimately saved me $65,000. He's a consummate professional, holds his people to his own high standards, and I would unequivocally recommend him for any real estate purchase in New Hampshire. Don't sell yourself short. Contact PorcupineRealEstate.com.